Who is the most underrated actor of all time? It's Dolph Lundgren. Correct. Why? Well, because of his uh, spiky hair, yep. his ice-cold demeanor, and his big muscles. Absolutely. I must break you. Welcome to I Must Break This Podcast. This is the fan podcast celebrating the cinematic career of action legend Dolph Lundgren. Hello and welcome back to I Must Break This Podcast, the fan podcast that takes a deep dive into the films of action star Dolph Lundgren. Today we're going back 20 years and taking a look at 1999's Jill the Ripper also known as Jill Rips. In this dark thriller, Lundgren plays Matt Sorensen, an alcoholic ex-cop who launches an investigation into the bizarre murder of his high-powered brother. A new kind of serial killer is on the loose. Notice his head? What head? Sex crime, never seen such a thing. And the only way to stop her is to enter her world. Dolph Lundgren. She is going to kill you. Jill the Ripper. Joining me to chat this film today is show regular and my buddy Brenton Hasem from the website All Out of Bubblegum. Brenton, thank you so much for coming back, man. Hey, no problem. Reuniting the dream team, I guess. The (laughs) Phoenician entertainment dream team. Well, and I, I think we kind of established this uh, back when we did Stormcatcher. Um, the the three films that Lundgren did with Phoenician Entertainment, the 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 Dream Team, as you say, I, I like that actually. But yeah, the production house uh, uh, power team of Fred Olin Ray, uh, Andrew Stevens, Jim Wynorski. Yeah, they uh, they had this little uh, production house net by the name of Phoenician Entertainment. Uh, put together tons of uh, schlocky. Um, direct-to-video B action films. And uh, interestingly, I read one review, or excuse me, interview with one of the writers who worked for Phoenician, and um, he said something I think was was, was so hilarious. Um, they did mostly action films without ever having to film an action sequence because they relied on nothing but stock footage. Yeah, so. that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> oh, geez. But, you know, with regard to this film, I mean, it's interesting because, yeah, uh, Lundgren had the, uh, the the trifecta of films that he did because he had a contract with Phoenician Entertainment. He first did Stormcatcher. Um, then he did Jill the Ripper. And then he did Agent Red, which is uh, uh, in the pipeline as well. But all of these films is really interesting. They all have distinct and separate storylines. But there are multiple threads that are connecting all three of these films. And so after we did Stormcatcher, I remember talking to you and it was like, you know, it only makes sense that we uh, that that we pretty much tackle all three of these films um, together. And I, you know, when I texted you the other day, I actually thought, you know, Jill the Ripper and Agent Red, these are two films that are really not my favorite. Maybe we could do these together in one episode. But the problem with that is they're so different that that would be just a crazy weird episode. So they're wildly different. In fact, <laughs> that is one of the films that. As they say, they didn't have to film any action for, and so that, that's exactly the example that you would use. And this is very much not. Yeah, this this is not an action picture. I mean, we can just say that right out of the gate. Yeah, yeah. this is not an action film. Um, so yeah, I, I imagine uh, I imagine the the editing team and post production was probably pretty relieved that they didn't have to dig through the stock footage library <laughs> to 
<laughs> to, to, to fit this one. But, um, but yeah, I guess we can just jump right in. Uh, Jill the Ripper, interesting dark film. Brenton, your first time, your first time seeing this film, if you can go back that far, what was your, what was, what's your, what's your experience with it? Uh, honestly, I was kind of surprised. I don't know what I expected. I guess I expected maybe more of a, like a hard nosed cop thriller. Um, and, and even when it starts up, it almost feels like it's going to be uh, like a sudden impact kind of film. And it kind of is, but sudden impact is still more of an action film than this is. And it's, I don't know. It's, I, I remember feeling just, um, just kind of disappointed. Um, at the, because even, even at his, uh, even in Agent Red, it, regardless of where they get the footage, that's still an action film. And that is why I usually go see Dolph Lundgren. I'm like, I want to see action. I want to see the guy shoot some people. And I mean, I, I think he shoots one guy in this and, and one woman. <laughs> so yeah. That's it. Yeah. You know, I mean, I, I like the fact that you said, it's not an action film. And I mean, on one hand, you know, I, I mean, it, it's Dolph Lundgren. So, of course, you go into one of his films and, you know, you're hoping for, you know, something that is action driven. But then on the other hand, you know, I, I think Lundgren is of the opinion, at least I'm assuming he was around this time, where he was saying, OK, you know what? I really want to flex my acting chops. I want to show people that I can do more, uh, more than just, you know, fire a big machine gun and, you know, do all that. So I would say right now, this is actually, in my opinion, I don't know if you'd agree with this, but I think this is probably the most daring of all of Lundgren's films. I mean, he clearly, he wanted a dark role, one where he could exhibit those acting chops and man, this is a dark role. So it is. And I think, you know, the failing of the film is not even with him. I think there are some editing choices and the, the, some of the support cast actually kind of lets him down. I think he's actually pretty good and through, through most of it. I would agree. And, you know, something else that I would agree with you said is I think this should have been a gritty cop drama. You know, I, I mean, personally, I, yeah. I'm, I've always gravitated toward cop, cop thrillers, cop dramas in general, general. But, yeah, I think this should have been, like you said, a gritty cop thriller. And, you know, in those first 10, 15 minutes, it does kind of hint at that where he is investigating the, the shady dealings uh, of this uh, of this tunnel that they're building and everything like that. So you kind of think that's where it's going. But what's interesting is the whole tunnel subplot just gets dropped completely in the second act. Well, yeah, I think they're doing a Chinatown thing there where, you know, the, the, the guy investigating something, it turns out it's, it's something else completely. That's, that's the cause of all the angst and is an entirely more personal subplot. But turns into the main plot by the end. Well, you know, I remember, I remember first hearing about this. Um, it actually premiered on HBO back in ninety eight, ninety nine, something like that. But it was under the title "Tied Up," which I was going to say later on. I think the title of "Tied Up" is <laughs> definitely more appropriate for this film than "Jill the Ripper." I, I would agree if if the if the movie has um kind of comic leanings, and and sometimes it seems unintentionally, but. I think if it was called tied up, that's way more on the nose and you would go, okay, I think it's supposed to be funny. Okay. But so, so maybe, but I, I would say if it, if it leaned more into the comedy that is inherent in a lot of what it deals with, because there are some stuff that's just 
goofy. Yeah, well, and I mean, <laughs> speaking of goofy, that's an excellent segue. Yeah, so um, it premiered uh, it premiered on HBO under Tied Up, um, but then it was eventually released by Sony Entertainment. Well, then it, then before it was Sony, it was Columbia TriStar. But I remember seeing this on the video store shelves, and this is one of my one of my probably the funniest early memories I have about the film is my local video store. Actually, I always thought it was kind of weird, but they had quite a few copies to rent of this one, which I thought was pretty generous considering that it was a, <laughs> a direct to video film. But what's, what's interesting about it is, I don't know if you've looked into this or not, but the box art for this film is extremely lazy. I mean, I've never seen anything like this. Um, I, I would call this the beginning of Photoshopped covers um, because you have an image of Dolph square in the center. It's oddly enough, it's the same image that was used for Stormcatcher. I don't know if you picked up on that or not, but it's the same image. I yeah, did. it's the same in- image from Stormcatcher. So yeah, the threads linking all of these three films together are numerous. But then you get an image of an attractive woman holding a butcher knife who never appears in the film. Um, and it, it all has this uh, this blue tint to it. But I think what is so interesting about this uh, about the the DVD case or the the videotape case, whatever it is you're looking at, the back of the case states that Dolph's character's name is Murray Wilson. And that he's a former San Francisco what? cop when that's not the case at all. Um, they even say that he's a former boxer, which I don't even know if they hinted that at all. Um, yeah. So, so Lundgren's character in the film is in fact, Matt Sorensen and he's a former Boston cop. Um, I, apparently this all, this all kind of goes back to uh, the fact that Murray Wilson was actually the protagonist's name in the novel, which this film is based on. Um, I probably should say that this film was based on a novel um, and the protagonist's name was Murray Wilson, but no one bothered to fact check this at all before it's released. So if you look at the back, it's going to say his name is Murray Wilson, San Francisco cop. Nope, that's not the case. I, I you know, what's weird is I don't think I even oh, noticed that. Okay. <laughs> I don't think, but I usually don't read the backs. I, I'm one of those guys. I don't even like seeing a trailer for movies. Usually, I, I just like to go in blind. So that's pretty funny. Well, and you know, like I said, this is based on a uh, based on a novel. Um, the the novel that it's based on is called Jill Rips, um, and yeah, the the novel is a gritty um, it's a gritty murder mystery that takes place in Scotland. And I have not read the book, but I think it's kind of going along the lines with what you and I would have liked this film to be more so. But interestingly, I read an interview with the author um, that is circulating online, and it's kind of interesting. He sold the rights for this to be made into a film. The script was completely rewritten, so the film that we see is nothing like the text at all. And Tom Berenger was actually slated to play the lead role, but then some budgetary disagreements occurred that fell through and uh lundgren eventually stepped into the role and when asked about it Fre- <laughs> frederick Lindsay uh basically said yeah tom berenger would have been just great i'm not so sure about dolph lundgren <laughs> oh well um i don't know i think i think it probably could have been if it was made in the more in the vein of sudden impact and it does kind of want to be that movie right but it doesn't it doesn't quite work. And I think maybe some of that is Hickox as well. I don't know if he's quite up to the task. I, I know that he's more of a her guy. And honestly, the her stuff kind of works, but not much else does. Yeah, no, that was actually going to be one of my comments I was going to say is, yeah, you, I mean, this is not the type of film that you would see 
Dolph Lundgren um, signing on for. I mean, you certainly around this time, you certainly didn't see Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Van Damme, or anyone else taking on a role like this. Because, like I said, let's face it, this does not feel like your typical Dolph Lundgren film. I mean, when you hear the premise, you know, a a burnt-out ex-cop enters the seedy world of S&M as he investigates the, the murder of his brother, you really don't think of Dolph Lundgren for that role. I mean, I... I mean, I could think of a, of a dozen other actors, and he is not one of the first people that uh, that jumps out. But I think the fact that he signed on for it shows that um, he wanted to prove to people, hey, I can do more, and I'm, I'm going to show it. I'm going to exhibit that. Yeah, and I, I don't want to spoil too much because I know you're going to go point by point eventually. But he does actually have a, a pretty decent monologue later in the film that I think he, he gives a lot of decent uh, subtext too. Right, right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, that, that, that scene is what really well done. And you know, what's also really well done is while this may not be certainly in Lundgren's wheelhouse, you said it, who I think is actually more comfortable and at ease with this film is like you said, director Anthony Hickox. I mean, considering that his wheelhouse is the horror genre, this certainly fits in with that preferred genre much more so than uh, the Stormcatcher does. Because I would say this film is more of a horror film, if anything else, than action. Yeah, definitely. But And this is, you know, and it is one of those, you know, you brought up Schwarzenegger and Stallone, and while not um, necessarily sex thrillers, they were doing, you know, you had End of Days, and uh, Stallone did that I, uh, detox. Yeah. I, I, I see you in some places. And, it, and they're... In, in a way similar, but, you know, I guess it'd be, it's pretty surface level similar, but they, they are trying to do something different. And I think that Dolph here takes the deepest dive amongst the bunch. Oh, most definitely. Yeah. If you put, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. Because this is, I mean, this came out kind of post seven, which, which is really kind of crazy because a lot of the, a lot of the action thrillers that were coming out around this time were kind of trying to ape the, uh, the, what, what we had seen in thriller. I mean, even Steven Seagal did the Glimmer Man, which is kind of a departure yeah, from, yeah. from what he, he had been doing. Um, the other thing that we should probably also mention is that this was released around the same time as, uh, Nicolas Cage's film, Eight Millimeter. Which also deals with, oh, and, you know, yeah. I mean, that film also is extremely creepy and disturbing and really whacked out. But that film also deals with very similar themes and dark, disturbing subject matter. Both uh, stories involve the investigation into this weird, you know, subworld, if you will. So um, I think uh, I think that's pretty interesting. Now, I'm not <laughs> having said that. I don't really um, want to go back to watching either of those films because I just feel ill after watching both of these movies to be honest it, honestly yeah you're right it does leave you that feeling too especially actually i felt more so in this one um maybe for different reasons but they, they have that similar taste to them yeah where you're like uh it, actually you know what it reminds me of is uh the uh michael kane film from the 70s get carter right a little bit so you know even the guy coming back to you know his brother dies and it's a whole thing and that actually i, I didn't even think about that till just now but it because that but that leaves me with that similar feeling a little bit where it just it's really grim and uh, especially when you get into the the, the killer's story you're just kind of like uh 
Yeah, it, it does not. Um, yeah, it's 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 really uh, really all over the place, and like I said, just disturbing and just kind of gross. But I, I mean, but then again, that's I think what they were obviously going for. But yeah, you know, you know, we already kind of said it, but you know, I, I think the the opening. 10, 15 minutes of the film are actually pretty well done. Uh, the film opens with the discovery of a body in a lake, and the body is nude and bound in rope. We also find out that this takes place in Boston, uh, 1977. Um, interestingly, uh, it takes place in Boston, but this is not Boston. This is very much Canada. So, <laughs> Well, um, I've seen this movie four times. And the third time I watched it was the first time I noticed it was 1977. And probably the second time was when I realized, oh, this is supposed to be in Boston. Okay. Well, that was so. that actually leads me to one of my biggest questions with the film is, why does this take place in the 70s? Like, I don't understand. I mean, it's an interesting yeah, choice, but there's, no, there's reason. no reason for this to take place in the 70s. And it's it's almost <laughs> comical to an extent because it's almost like it keeps trying to remind you of its setting almost laughably to a fault. I mean, you'll have one character, not all characters, but you'll have one character jump in wearing this uh, hilariously terrible Afro wig, like from a costume party, almost trying to like remind yeah. you, hey, our film is in the 70s. In case you forgot that, we're going to throw in another character here. <laughs> yeah, well, then, yeah, the, the you got the black nurse who's doing a kind of an outrageous, I don't know, almost like a Pam Greer caricature. So, yeah, I don't it's know. It's odd. It's odd. But, but you know, I mean, <laughs> I, I do like how, okay, so... It uh, yeah, so we see the body in the lake, and then immediately shifts to a funeral procession. I don't know about you, but I actually really like how they introduce Dolph's character. How the camera just kind of comes in slowly behind him, and then gradually exposes his face. Yeah. I actually really liked it. I thought it was a nice touch. I did too. With that, that it's one of those things too where you watch it, and there's a lot of um, shots where I don't know. The the guy has good comp composition. The whoever's doing the uh, director of photography here, uh, and it it's quite good a lot of the times. And there's a lot of interesting foreshadowing. I was noticing something this last time I watched it that the the woman is a lot of the scenes that she's wearing a red robe, and, yeah. and it's just like a very clear like foreshadowing and i was like oh that's that's pretty clever so even dolph's entrance which he comes in and he's got this hoodie on and he oh there's his nose his chin and it's kind of it's a really nice intro and even when he's talking to the other cop you barely see his face but it's just there yeah. enough because it's kind of like oh he's not here and then they even comment on it you know or he does he says he's like a ghost or something yeah. Which is yeah, great. No, it's a great shot. He's even uh, Dolph's character even has some stubble and he has some beard stubble throughout the film. I mean, his hair is never combed either, which I which I thought was really mm -hmm. interesting. Um, oddly enough, that's one of the things that I think is so funny about the uh, about the DVD cover for this is yeah, in the film he he's always just so disheveled and his his hair is just completely matted and messy. But if you look at the uh, the DVD cover, he just has this nice combed hair and everything. I mean, it looks like. Smooth, smooth face, face and everything. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, interestingly, uh, the body found in the lake is Michael Sorensen, who's this politician in the Boston area who is helping oversee the development of a tunnel, and Dolph Lundgren is his brother, Matt. And so that's pretty much all the character development that we need or that we get at that point in the film. Yeah, but it's – I love the uh, the introduction of the, the, the subway tunnel actually – like I said earlier, it, it's uh, it reminded me of Chinatown, and I just thought, well, that's that's just a nice 
nod. I thought it was just a, of course, Chinatown's a great movie. So it's in, it's, so it's a little rough to compare the two, but I think that the idea of going that route is a good route. Well, and I mean, earlier I said how that subplot completely gets dropped, but I guess it kind of does come oddly enough, weirdly full circle because that's where the climax of the film happens. The, the final shootout, if you will, yes. happens in the tunnel. But the proprietor of that tunnel, uh, Big Jim Conway, he pretty much leaves the film within the second act, and we don't see him anymore. I mean, whatsoever. <laughs> no. No, you're, you're kind of depending on that, that goofy henchman with the wig, as you brought up earlier, but you're kind of depending on him to be the presence of Big Jim. Yeah. Yeah, so, um, but, you know, um, the one thing I want to mention as well is, you know, um, we said that uh, Lundgren has some stubble. He is dirty. I would say outside of his role as the Punisher, I think this is probably the most down and out that we've ever seen Lundgren. At this point in his career, this is probably the most, I mean, he's this burnt-out alcoholic, former Boston detective. I mean, like I said, this is the, the, the darkest we've seen him. And I would argue, actually, even today, within the stuff he's done within the past decade, this is still the, the the darkest and 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 most most down and out, as I said. Yeah, it would take Van Dam almost another decade to to even go that right. route. Right. Yeah, that's right. He did until death. Right, and he was like a was a yeah, was a exactly. drug addict cop as well. And that was yeah, you're right. So you know, this is this is uh, Dolph having one of those opportunities to just get the jump on things as far as uh, that that tier of action star goes in this kind of turn. Well, what's interesting that you mentioned, if you bring up Van Damme, because I remember when Until Death came out, that film got, you know, for being a direct-to-video film, I remember that one got a lot of critical praise, um, at least from a lot of the uh, a lot of the online communities and, and, and whatnot. I remember actually Entertainment Weekly had a little blurb about it, and they said it was one of the best things Van Damme ever did. So it's it's another, you know, I always feel like Mr. Lundgren has always had a bit of, bad luck in his career, if you will. I mean, he's doing ex- exceptionally well. 2018 was an amazing year. Um, don't get me wrong. But um, it, mm. it's, it's, it's kind of ironic in a weird way that, that when Van Damme tries his hand at this, it's one of the best films, one of his best performances. Yet when Lungan tried his hand at it, you know, 10 years prior, um, it got called one of his worst. Isn't that odd to you? Yeah. Although and it's hard to disagree too, but man, it's like he is so good on a lot of it that it's like if the movie around him had been just a little bit better, it probably would have worked out for him a little better yeah. too. Right, right. Well, you know, and I do, I do like the fact, um, like I said, the fact that he plays this this burnt out alcoholic, you know, ex cop. And we see him, you know, we, I mean, we pretty much know from the get-go, he is going to be the one launching his own investigation into into the murder of his brother. Um, but I like how right off the bat, he's demonstrating these keen detective skills. And it, it's interesting because he already senses that something is fishy. And I guess as the viewer, we see this as well. Um, but he sees that something is fishy in the development of this tunnel because his brother, we find out that his brother was hesitant in its construction because the ground wasn't stable. But um, the, the the character who we mentioned earlier, Big Jim Conway, is insistent on getting it built. And so it, it's interesting because when we see Big Jim Conway and then when we see him talking to that uh, that shady uh, Polish Elvis character who, uh, <laughs> who comes in later, we pretty much assume, I mean, at least at that moment, that he's going to be our main bad guy in the film, right? Yeah. And he certainly acts right. like it. <laughs> like, 
he's got he's got it down too that I don't even know who the guy is. I've never seen the actor before. And I'm like, yeah, he's he's gonna be quite the heavy. He's he's big enough too, so you're like, oh, he could possibly be a, a physical foe for Dolph too. It's the way they shoot it, they even call you know, and calling him Big Jim. You're like, oh, they, they almost set it up that way. Well, and doesn't he even, when he first meets Lundgren, doesn't he say something along the lines of, uh, you know, I heard you were an alcoholic, and then he looks at him, I think you're drunk now. You know, so. Yeah, something like that. So <laughs> they set it up. They set up their antagonistic relationship, and then they do just kind of drop it. But I guess it, you know, if it was a little tighter, it would have worked better. That's, I think that's going to be like the main main thing we're going to keep probably going back to because uh, there's so many opportunities. Yeah. Well, and let me let me ask you actually because we meet right away. Um, Sorensen meets his brother's wife, so his sister-in-law. Um, the character's name is Irene. I've never seen this actress before, um, but she's played by Danielle Brett. Um, we find out apparently that they were newly married, married only for six months, and then you know um, uh, Matt's brother died. Um, but what do you think of the actress who plays Irene? Uh, I don't think she's strong enough to carry a film. She's sort of a, she seems more like a, like maybe somebody that would be on like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or something. And she's, she's really young. I mean, she's, she's extremely young, which I I guess maybe that's what they were going for. But yeah, like you, you said it, considering a lot of the themes and the, the big, the big turn and the big arc that we find out about her character later on, I kind of wonder as well if, she has enough to pull that off yet, you know? Well, yeah, she gives a speech later that, you know, the you know, bless her, the actress is really trying, and I just don't think she can bring it. Also, they, the score in this movie really lets a lot of the emotional beats down. Um, there's this kind of piano score through yeah. a lot of it, and it's not working. Um, I think it could be an interesting score on its own, <laughs> but when it's playing... When it's playing during dialogue, it's, it's it's jarring almost. Well, I'm glad you brought up the score, actually. Yeah, because I, I, I do like it in some scenes. Like you said, when they play it during dialogue, it, it doesn't work. But that final scene at the end of the film when Lundgren sits down and starts petting the dog and the score comes in, I really, yeah. really like that scene then and then the way the, the score comes in there. So I, I do like that part. Well, that's how you that's how you use right. it properly, I think, and that's where it's where they did it right. In fact, even when he's uh, staking out the apartment later, I'm like that, there you go. That's how you right. do it. Right. Well, and you know something else I like about this film. I like the fact that it takes place in snowy Boston. I mean, and it, it's mm-hmm. clearly not Boston, like we said. This is <laughs> this is Canada, but I mean, Canada's been doubled for New York and Boston, you know. For, 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 you know, decades. Um, but I think, you know, and obviously they chose this for a reason, but I don't know about you. I think the cold and the snow just help add such a gloomy atmosphere to the film's dark and disturbing themes. I mean, so I, I mean, that, that was obviously a conscious decision for them to have it take place in just this cold, dreary weather, right? Yeah, well, definitely. There's a, there's a scene when, um, when, uh, Dolph Lundgren goes to the uh the docks uh, later on when he follows the cop there and that is shot in the in the dark and you you feel the oppressive cold there's a great wide shot where you see all the flashlights and everything and that's a 
you feel the cold in that scene. And I love that stuff. And I love all the, you know, even when they're just showing the back alleys and there's all the snow and all the stairs and all that kind of stuff, they do a good job with that. And it really does help. And he says something to her early on, I think about being cold blooded, which is another another foreshadowing line. And uh, I I don't know. They they do a good job. It's it's the language and, and the look of things. And, that stuff helps. Now, what do you think? I mean, the, the other interesting thing about uh, about Lundgren's character is he appears to be almost kind of like a legend in the uh, in, in in the Boston Police Department, where he has this story about him that has that has gone down. Uh, you know, that like I said, that has made him a legend. W- what did you think about that angle that they gave him? I liked that angle actually. I, I wish they'd lean more into that. I wanted to know. What what did he do in San, when he went to California? That kind of you know it made it more interesting. I was like, what is going on here? Um, and then when he gives the speech at the end um, and and explains his motivations for that story, it uh it honestly I think it's the best scene in the movie. Yeah, yeah, I, I would have liked a little bit more backstory into into all that as well. But then again, I also kind of like the mystery behind it. I like the fact that he when he comes into the film, he's completely burnt out. But we kind of get hints that he was at one time quite good at what he did. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah. That's, that's probably a better, better look at it. Honestly. Now, what do you think? I mean, we kind of touched on him as well um, because there's so many different players in this film. I, I know we're kind of going all over the place, um, but yeah, you know, um, we find out a couple things, actually. I should probably back up. Uh, Sorensen, you know, like you said, he begins his own investigation into the murder of his brother. In an autopsy, we find out that he was voluntarily tied up in some kind of bizarre activities, we'll say, um, and that many of the cuts on him were inflicted after he was dead. So this, of course, you know, keys Lundgren in that uh, that something was not exactly kosher here, obviously. So he's going to start investigating. He goes to the tunnel where he saw Big Jim talking to um, talking to that uh, that Polish Elvis, as he called him earlier. We find out also that the tunnel is named the Sorensen Tunnel, named after his brother. But as yeah. he's touring this tunnel, he he's blindsided and threatened by this evil associate. We find out that his name is Joe Jujavia. This is one of the things, one of the problems with the film is, obviously, I mean, this character is, he's supposed to be just this ruthless pimp or whatever, I'm assuming, but... The actor that they chose for him, first of all, the wig that he's wearing looks ridiculous, but the actor, he's <laughs> Polish or whatever, and I mean, he just, uh, it, it, it doesn't come off believable at all. I don't know if you felt that way. Oh, it was ridiculous. <laughs> okay. So, uh, I uh, previously, I talked to you, um, and you'd asked me uh, if, if my, my wife had seen this movie. And she got an opportunity <clears throat> to watch it earlier, uh, earlier now today. Okay. And she started talking to me about this character, and she thought that was the funniest thing in the movie. And I, and for her, it turned the movie into a comedy. So, which you know, and and to um, her point, yeah. to her point is, I mean, that's like, I mean, I almost think like that's the worst thing that you. I mean, if 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 I was Anthony Hickox and I heard someone saying that, it's like that's not. That's not the point of this film. Considering the themes of this film and and what's going on, this should not be comical at all. There should not even be one trace of you know of of humor within this film at all. And the fact that they chose this ridiculous you know actor for this role, 
really <laughs> takes you out. I mean, I mean, if, if you're going with it so far, you have a little bit of intrigue with the, with the development of this tunnel. And I think the autopsy scene that we saw earlier was really well done. And then you have this character come in with the wig and the, and the accent. It's like, what are they doing here? Like, what? Yeah, it's, it's actually, it kind of throws you through a loop. You don't, you don't even know what's, uh, you're like, so he's, he, the other thing is the way he talks. Yeah. It's not just the accent, but he grits his teeth and spits his lines through his teeth. It's terrible. Yeah. yeah it's, it's extremely grating. So you, you, and he's supposed to be ostensibly the threat, the henchman to the main uh, villain, ostensibly through most of the film. And if you can't take him seriously, you don't take the threat seriously. And it really jars with, say, the body they pull up, as, as you mentioned earlier, which is a very well done effect. And that's like something out of seven. And suddenly this guy comes in like he's a, a villain from Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> <laughs> I like that, actually. Yeah, he's probably more more fitting for Rocky and Bullwinkle, which I mean, not. Yeah. Wasn't the live action Rocky and Bullwinkle movie, wasn't that released around the late nineties, early two thousands as well? So maybe he should have been in that. This is one of those weird times where there's these actors in this movie and I just I don't know who they are. Like I don't know who that guy is. I don't know who the lead female is. Um there are people that look familiar. The guy that plays his buddy cop, but I don't know where I would I could place that guy. But it is it is one of those films where there's basically no one you know. Well I think that's and except for Dolph well, and I think exactly. I think that's the Phoenician entertainment way, man. I think they they pretty much they put yeah. <laughs> most of their budget and everything into getting Lundgren on set to where it's like, okay, well, we have our big name. And I said the same thing uh, when uh, when I covered the Last Warrior last month. It's the same thing. They they got their big name star. So all the other actors, you know, I'm sure they did other things, but for <laughs> for for the sake of it, I you know I didn't. Yeah care to go back and, and look at them because I've never seen them uh, <laughs> other than this. But, you know, something else that you touched upon that, that I want to mention that I think is interesting is, yeah, the use of red in this film. I mean, this film is extremely dark. I mean, there's lots of blacks and browns. I mean, uh, you know, it takes place mostly at night. But when you see red pop up in this film, it is extremely striking. And I only say this because one of the, the the main things in the film that is red is our uh, is our villain of the film the uh, the the titular Gilda Ripper wearing this uh, red yes. leather suit and mask very disturbing very creepy rightfully so and when we see her uh, enter the film tying up another victim takes this nasty butcher knife stab goes right to black I mean when when this character is on screen it is it's I don't want to say I don't want to say frightening, but but I think we kind of established it earlier. Just really, just really gross. I, I don't, you know, it's just, it makes you uncomfortable. Yeah. Well, it's incredibly striking. Yeah. But they do an interesting thing in this movie that I noticed this last time I watched it, where all the women, um, generally the villainous characters, they're they wear very flamboyant, bright outfits. Or, you know, at, at the most, or there, you know, there's a, a woman in black leather later on. But for the most part, you know, what's the, the lady he goes to the, at the bar is wearing bright yellow. And then there's, of course, the, the black nurse wearing the, the white. 
it's it's very different because everybody else is wearing a very like drab color, but then these these women show up and they are like bright colors, and uh, it, you know, and it all of course culminating in the in the tight red leather outfit of the uh, of our titular killer. Now, and you know, speaking of which, so you you like the title Jill the Ripper, uh, is, is that right? I mean, did do you mind it, or I mean, do you think it's a fitting title? I I don't. Yeah, I think it's fine because um, I like the turn of you know Jack the Ripper is a you know is a sick guy who who killed prostitutes and to to turn it around and be uh, his prostitute killing killing the men is is I think clever that if you're going to gender flip it you can flip the script as well and I think that it kind of says it in the title. I didn't even think about that, but yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, uh, Jack the Ripper did pray on on call girls as opposed to uh yeah this one they did flip that which is interesting mm -hmm. the the one thing that i think is interesting is for a film about a about a female serial killer i mean i don't know if it bothered you at all i mean i guess i can see the pros and cons to it to both ways but don't you think find it interesting that for a film about a, uh, about a female serial killer all of the killings are off screen i mean did, did, did you notice that i uh, more yeah it's more or less um I don't know. Like, I feel like in the in the nineties and early two thousands, they didn't generally like showing uh, stabbing. Right. It was. I mean, they've never really cared for it in movies, but especially then, because I I grew I grew up with a lot of the eighties movies and stuff, and so I saw a lot of knife killing and in, in slasher films. But this is when it got to the nineties. Even you watch something like Scream, um, they they edited out most of the the actual cutting. Right. Um, you can find unrated versions out there in the wild, but um, for, with a theatrical, they they tried to edit that stuff out, and it's just like this. So I felt like this was kind of in line with that. And you watch, uh, I know what you did last summer. People die from knives, but you don't really see it. You just like here's a sound effect. Right. Right. Yeah. But anyway, that that was something else that I noticed. But me, yeah, actually, you you may have gotten me to turn around on the title after talking with you because at first I was like. Why is this called Jill the Ripper? I mean, I get that she's a serial killer, but we're not really even getting. I mean, because in the film, she really only. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but was it? A, is it two victims? It's really a two victims in this film, aren't there? I think there's two, and the attempt is made on a third. Right. So, I mean, I, I don't want to. I I don't want to mitigate anything that she is doing by any means. But I mean, for a movie about a serial killer to only have. I, I I mean I don't know. I, <laughs> for there are only yeah. be two deaths. I, I thought that was kind of interesting. Well, to, like like I said at the beginning, at the top here, uh, I think Lundgren only kills two people as well. So it's I mean it's kind of a if you're looking at it, if that's a, it's a poor showing. So you want it for the 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 gore or something. You don't really get that. You don't get it for the kills. You don't get it for the action. So that's sort of where the movie falls because it doesn't give anybody any of the things they came for. right uh, i guess unless you're really into the bdsm scene then then they, i guess it's got it's got a few things for you <laughs> well you know i mean the other thing that i think is uh is, is fun about the film well i shouldn't say fun but is interesting about the film uh being a dolph lundgren film obviously this is not heavy on action but we do get to see him be intimidating and throw down a little bit the first time is where yeah. he finds out that uh joju javia that's the uh, the character wearing the terrible wig with the accent um he finds out that he is a pimp who employs quote unquote uh, leather women 
Um, so Lundgren decides to enter a bar where many of these women hang out, um, hoping to meet a former woman of his named Mary, because Mary, I guess she's like his contact into this world. And so we get to see a little bit of a uh, of, of a fight. It's not much of one, but it is a, a bar fight. Clearly, you know, Sorensen is asking the wrong questions about the wrong people. So this gets the wind of uh, other people. And we touched upon them already, but one of the guys who, uh, who Dolph scares is wearing a, uh, a costume. 70s wig another wig so yeah <laughs> yep i actually i like the guy's outfit um it's but it, i have no idea why it didn't occur to me that it was in the 70s until that uh you know third time watching because it feels like that's the most obvious one but there's no reason for this to be in the uh, 70s he's... though i mean i still go back to that i'm like no there's i i, I don't disagree you're there's there's literally none. There's nothing they do in it that you couldn't do. Well, and I, Even, you know, the, you, you could remake this now and just go, it doesn't need to be in the well, 70s. And I, I do like how Sorensen, he does kidnap Big Jim. And I, I, I love his method of kidnapping <laughs> Big Jim. So, yeah, he kidnaps him because he knows that Big Jim has as something or he knows something that maybe uh, can help uh, Sorensen out. And he basically just starts violently careening this chauffeured vehicle around a construction site until he gets an answer out of Big Jim. <laughs> I just thought that was funny to where I was like, you know, Big Jim seems he's not exactly a fit guy, but I bet he could open up the door of the car and just, yeah. and just hop out. But yeah, I love how he's just careening around this construction site and he's repeating the same question over and over, hoping that eventually Big Jim is going to speak. And he does, but... Yeah, so, I mean, you can't argue with no. results. I mean. <laughs> and so what we find out is, yeah, Big Jim, he takes Sorensen back to his office and shows them video footage of Michael Sorensen um, essentially being humiliated, I will say, by the uh, red leather-clad dominatrix that we, that we saw earlier. And so apparently, I mean, if I read this right... Big Jim was using this footage to blackmail Michael Sorensen in voting for the tunnel to go through because uh, Michael Sorensen didn't think that the tunnel was ready. So Big Jim used this to uh, to intimidate him to get pretty much what he wanted, right? Yeah. So I think it's one of the more effective, effective scenes in the movie and effective, I guess. But it, um, I actually really like the way Dolph plays it. You know, it's it's. Uh, What's a George George Scott? It's kind of a George Scott thing where he has to look at this film. Yeah, and but uh, it's great, and he doesn't, you know, he doesn't flinch the way Scott does. But it's great still. Just the um, there's a lot of great close-ups on on Lundgren. Just um, it's like this numbing, horrible thing. And it's the first time I think when I was watching it that I got that feeling. Yeah, yeah. No, it is an interesting like, scene. Oh but God. I mean, this is this is it. We see a big Jim. I mean, he leaves the film, and so yeah. there's some like you said. Yeah, he literally walks off like off screen because I figure. <laughs> I, I guess they figure. Well, we've done everything we can do with his character, and I, I guess maybe in a weird way, maybe that that was the idea was misdirection. They wanted to have that character in the beginning to kind of direct you into going one way, and in in the end, that is not. He is not going to be our main culprit. But yeah, it, it's it's very clumsy and very sloppy, sloppily edited the way he just leaves the film. Yeah, I, unless it was intentional, I'm not really sure yet. Um, maybe, but he had this. He does give this great line before he leaves, which it's probably uh, aside outside of the um, uh, the 
the monologue that Dolph gives, he says, he says something like, um, uh, he let the wrong bitch time right. up and he died in search of a better orgasm. And I was like, that's just like darkness, just a bleak, bleak, dark line. And I swear that's probably straight out of the book. It's got, it's got to be something, a, a writer yeah. wrote that kind of thing, a writer writer. Um, and then of course you follow up with that, this great, great scene where he's standing in front of a projector getting beat by these guys and the image of his brother getting beat um, by the dominatrix like projected onto him. It's great. It's great composition. Well, and you know, I got to give a lot of that to uh, Anthony Hickox because yeah, this is, this is within his, uh, within the genre that he is comfortable in. And, you know, I mean, I I don't want to go all the way to our recommend all the way at the end, but, um, I mean, I certainly, I mean, I I think I enjoyed Stormcatcher more than this one, just, you know, because of the content. But having said that, um, I think that as a, as a film in general, uh, this is, this is much better directed by Anthony Hickox than, than Stormcatcher was. Cause like you said, the composition, the, the coloring, the, the various shots. Yeah. I mean, if if we could get rid of the score and have a different score, then I I would say this adds definitely a, a, certainly a, uh, a moody atmosphere to the entire thing. Yeah, I'd throw a sort of dingy, bassy synth score onto this movie if I, if it was up to me. Um, in fact, the, the scene immediately following um, the dream sequence, they, they use a something like that. And I'm like, yes, that's effective. That's what you should do. Well, and I mean, okay, so so the next scene, because this is what I find so interesting, yeah, so Sorensen's, uh, or excuse me, not Sorensen, uh, Big Jim's goons, including Joe Jujavia, they, they come in at the scene as he's watching the video, ambush Matt, mm-hmm. beat him, leave him for dead, and we get a really odd transition here. I, I don't know what you thought about it. So what we see in the film, basically, directly after Sorensen is tied up, with the same type of rope that we saw earlier on the victims. And he's being dragged along some really harsh looking gravel seems to be in a cold mountainous area. And then we see the, uh, the red leather villain. Um, she appears standing on top of this mountain of sorts where I, I guess Dujavia seems to offer Sorensen up to her, but is that a dream sequence then? Okay. Yeah. So I assumed when I watched Holy it, that it was meant to, well, I think it's supposed to be salt, okay. but I'm not salt, really okay. sure because they do it. There's like a close up. It might be salt or quartz, but I think it was supposed to be salt. But it's a neat like it's a trick because you're thinking um, snow at first. And then and then uh, there's like a close up of his face. And I was like, OK, interesting. Yes. And see, I, I mean, I, I assumed it was a dream sequence as well, because it immediately cuts to the next scene where Sorensen is being woken up by Irene. Um, he's been beaten and unconscious by the train tracks, but I mean, we don't really get a, uh, where we're, you know, in the most dream sequences in films, you know, you see the character immediately wake up and jostle awake and you don't even really see that. Yeah. So I was, I mean, I guess, yeah, like I said, I assumed it was a dream sequence, but it, it's kind of clumsy the way they edit that. Yeah. Well, I- I think the more the most obvious thing about that is that um, if they really wanted to hit you hard with it, she should have just been like brutally stabbing right. him, and and then uh, and then cut because I think he gets she she gets a couple in, which is a very and then they oddly kind of transition it. But if you really wanted to, like, he should have started screaming, and that turned into the train. The train, right? Okay, yeah, 
because that's that's how they cut it. Yeah, yeah, that would have actually been a really good idea. Um, but I mean, I'm not, you know, I'm not the director, so <laughs> what do I know? But that that was my thought when I was watching. I was like, you know, this probably could have been done a little bit better. Well, if you and I directed this one, Brenton, I think we would have. Uh, we would have yes. Done. <laughs> a lot of different things with this. But Matt has a theory about his brother's killer. He suspects that the killer is one of the daughters of a deceased former prostitute. So he assumes it's either uh, Francis or Ursula. Um, what, what do you think about uh, the introduction of this? Uh, I don't want to say subplot, but about his suspicions here with um, with these with these two sisters. Um, I honestly, I don't know how he comes to the. Thank conclusion. you. I, I feel like there are scenes. I was like, w- did I miss something? How did he come to this? So I'd have to rewatch it, but I seem to remember um, I, there's just like a shot of him. He's hanging out and he has a folder in his hands. And, and I'm like, where did he? Like, you don't even. I feel like you don't. They, they don't tell you where he even got yeah. that. It's just odd. It, it is really weird. So he goes to he goes to a local brothel to find um, one of these suspects where we get the returning Kylie backs. So, again, um, yes, again, the threads between this and Stormcatcher continue once again. Quite the change in roles, though, compared to her soccer mom character in Stormcatcher. <laughs> uh, I like this. I like the accent. Um, so, I mean, she she makes it work. Um, you know, there's like, she's, this is another one of those scenes where it's funny. Like the whole thing is, is well, funny. she's wearing the weird like, mask okay. like thing. Like it's, oh, that's right. Yeah. She's got like a half Catwoman mask almost. Yeah. It's, it, it's odd, but that's her only scene in the film, which, which I thought was interesting. It's almost like they gave her, they gave her, I would say what, 15 maybe 20 but probably not even 20 that's probably stretching it but they gave her about 15 minutes of screen time in Stormcatcher, and in this one she has maybe yeah. two in, in in a role that is the complete opposite of the soccer mom <laughs> but uh it's pretty funny i don't know they must have convinced her you know just uh come back we'll do this funny funny scene and she's i don't know i think she's having a good yeah. time she's strutting about and doing stuff and it's, it's yeah fun. well <laughs> so i that's the only sound uh, that's where i can go okay i see where this could be a yeah. comedy um or, or or just more of a goofy film like but they it's one of those things too where not just another you know throw it on the on the pile there where here you go so one more thing they don't really lean into and so you end up leaving sort of feeling odd about it yeah you know they do a scene later on with the other nerd with that nurse where she's she's been spanking a guy, and they leave. And the last shot is the guy that's been being spanked. His head's in an oven. <laughs> He's just like that's the last shot of that scene. The guy's just still in the oven, like ugh. Yeah, which <laughs> it's just it's it's well, weird. weird, and it shouldn't be in this film. I mean, if you if you want to compare this, if you <laughs> no. want to compare this again to Eight Millimeter, because I think those these two films are so similar. Eight Millimeter has no comedy in it whatsoever. As it should. I mean, it, I mean, it is a film that should not have it. I mean, I guess you could say Joaquin Phoenix's character. You know, he you know adds a little bit of levity, but th- but that's that's pretty much all you're going to get. That this this is just tonally, you know, all over the place here. Yes, and and that's uh, to its detriment. Yes. So. We do get a revelation at this point. I mean, it's a, it's approaching pretty much the third act. We find out uh, that his brother's wife, Irene, 
is actually Ursula, one of the daughters who he's been looking for. I'll, I'll go to you first. Did, did, did this turn, did this surprise you at all regarding, regarding the character? No. Yeah, me neither. No, I, I, so the other thing that we probably should have mentioned at the top was this movie comes about 10 years too okay. late. <laughs> I mean, all the, the, or the early 90s, late 80s, early 90s sex thrillers, um, this is trying to be kind of an updated one of those, but it, what it ends up being is a shallow reflection of them. Yeah. And all of them had very similar, you know, from basic instinct and, and they had a very similar, like, oh, it was the, the, the other, you know, the, the woman character all along that kind of like femme fatale. Oh, it was the innocent girl thing that, you know, you almost expected it from any movie now at this point. Well, especially, I mean, it's pretty telegraphed from the get go because when we first meet her character, I mean, yeah, she seems sad at the funeral and especially when she's meeting her brother-in-law, the character of man, but you, you pretty much sense, you know, that that there's something else there that, that we're going to be finding out later on. I mean, so me personally, none of this took me by surprise whatsoever. No. And it, it honestly, doesn't really work because they never establish who the other character is, the sister character. They don't deal with her no. much at all. No. Well, I mean, and yeah, so she just, I mean, so, okay. So Sorensen, he's almost certain who Francis is and where she works because, okay. So yeah, Irene is Ursula. So he's looking for Francis cause he's, he's, you know, a hundred percent positive. that Francis is the culprit. She is the suspect. So, and he knows where she works. So he pretends to be a John um, and he, you know, hires her. And the next thing we know, again, a daring role for Dolph, especially a daring scene. Um, the next scene, we find him tied up, hanging upside down in the exact position that he saw his brother in on the video shortly before his death. Um, but what's interesting is the one thing I, I mean, I don't want to say I really like this scene, but it is a very daring and a very, um, well-acted scene from Dolph because you can genuinely see the fear in Lundgren here. And something that I think uh, works with that. It's also really well edited. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. Director Anthony Hickox, what I think is amazing is, well, him and the editor, whoever was working on this, um, but they intercut the scene with the video footage of Matt's brother um, being tied up and killed as well. And so, yeah, they, they have those intercut scenes with Dolph. And so, yeah, you can see, that uh, Lundgren's character, Matt, appears to be genuinely scared and genuinely frightened for his life, as he should. I thought that was a really nice touch. Yeah. The whole thing's good. You know, I can't believe that Dolph Lundgren is in a in a movie licking a dominatrix's boot know. to begin with. But following that up, like, with what is actually a really well-edited scene of him um, showing fear and being that vulnerable for even, uh, you know, you didn't see, I guess he was Stallone would get vulnerable back in his early acting days, but you didn't see like Schwarzenegger doing this kind of stuff. You, and you still, don't. yeah, exactly. You still don't. I mean, it's, it's, and I remember when I, when I saw this back in 99, when I rented it from the video store, it was just like, Whoa, like, you know I mean? Cause <laughs> And I've said it before numerous times, uh, He-Man, uh, Universal Soldier, you know, I Come in Peace. Those were all like the the movies that, that made me a fan. And so when you see him in that scene, it's like, wow, this is, um, 
this is completely different and you're either going to love it, hate it. But bottom line is at the end of the day, you're going to, you know, you're going to remember, okay, that was one trying something new there. So it is interesting to think about that the cops, or I guess the cop friend character and Dolph Lundgren are, they, they, they're, they plant evidence and they kind of do some, some dirty things in this movie. Yeah, and Lundgren's okay with it. I mean, that's what I thought was too. Yeah, I mean, he's, I mean, he's not okay with it at first. So yeah, um, his partner comes in, um, blasts, uh, blasts Francis. Uh, that's who we assume she is. The problem is she never had a knife. So Eddie plants a knife, all looks to be over, case closed. And at first we see some apprehension on behalf of uh, Lundgren, but he he goes along with it and he goes back home and uh, he's okay with it as well. I mean, it's really, I mean, and, and that's one of the things I was going to get to him. I recommend there aren't any likable characters in this film. Like I don't like or sympathize with anybody in this film whatsoever. I mean, and that's one of the reasons why yeah. it just leaves you feeling so, so ill afterwards. Yeah, that's, and with one of the things, um, the, what's the lady say? The, the, she's, she's screaming, you know, she doesn't have the right to, to anything. Right. Right. That's, that's her, her big speech at the end. And when you just think about the words, um, you go, wow. Okay. And then you end up leaving because of what she says. You, you, you honestly kind of end up hating Dolph's character. Right. Because she's not wrong about any of that stuff. Yeah, she's. I mean, as 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 sympathetic as a uh, as a serial killer villain can be. Yeah, she is. Um, I, I guess in a, in a very odd odd way. You, I mean, you do see where she's coming from and sympathize with her, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, I mean, and that that goes to uh, the the second revelation of the film. It turns out. I mean, again, this didn't surprise me at all. It turns out that Irene. Uh, the character of Irene, she is the real villain here. Her mother really isn't dead. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I think what is, uh, what is interesting, we see Sorensen, he, uh, starts digging through a few of their boxes. And what does he find? A platinum blonde wig. And so, <laughs> and so, I mean, this I, didn't surprise you at all. I either. have no idea what to think of the mother not really dead. Uh, twist. yeah, because we never see the mother either. No. And so my first thought was there was like a, a Mrs. Bates thing going on because they were doing that, uh, not showing her. And then the movie just ends and you're going, so wait a minute. Was anything that anybody said true? Right. So like, did she, <laughs> um, did, so if that woman didn't die, then why were people being killed? I, I still don't understand. Well, it. And it's really kind of weird because we find out that, okay, so she's going after, because because Lundgren says in a quick uh, in a quick line in passing he says I'm gonna go save Joju Javia's life because apparently she's mm-hmm. gonna be going after him and so yeah in our final uh, I don't even want to call it a shootout but when all of these revelations and everything like that are found out we we basically find out that Irene was abused and so as revenge for what her mother went through and what she went through and everything. Um, she is uh she's taken revenge but on one of these one of these people one of her i guess next victim is going to be the uh the polish elvis character and so as she's getting ready to i mean did, does she kill him she does right she does kill the polish elvis right no no? no uh he shoots uh, joe juvavi oh, that's right okay i'm pronouncing that Sorry, right. yeah so he's basically she she uh theon Greyjoy is right at him with a knife and <laughs> He just takes her out with a tire. That's iron. right. 
That's right. And then yeah, so Lundgren blows him away, and then he he shoots he shoots her right. Yeah. And no, no, he doesn't shoot her. He would have shot her in the nineties. Um, that would have happened. She'd be dead, and then she'd confess, and that would be the end of a nineties movie. This movie, um, he basically. Um, hugs her and holds her, and she's bleeding out of her face. Oh, she and they, and they seemingly right. leave together. Yeah, yeah. And they seemingly leave and together, and then the next thing you know is him digging through the boxes and finding out that the the, the he finds the blonde wig. That, yeah, that's the order of it. Do you see, Brenton, how this film has uh, confused me so much that uh, many of these many of these elements kind of. <laughs> I've seen it four times, and I think I'm confused because yeah, so... I'm probably. Like I have no idea what happens to the to the to the gal. Yeah. Well, and even you kind of touched upon it uh, earlier, but the character of Mary Lundgren shoots her as well because I mean she helped him out a little bit earlier, but then she comes out with a gun, um, ready ready to blast Lundgren, and Lundgren has to uh, has to kill her as well. I mean that's the other thing about this film that we kind of haven't touched upon, but um, I mean Lundgren he's he's a little crooked as a cop, but I mean he. Um, he roughs up anyone and everyone, including females, to to get his uh, get what he wants. Yeah. Which that certainly doesn't make him very likable in my book. Yeah, well, in the in the seventies, they would have killed him, right? You know that, that you know Michael Caine's character. That, that's what happens. I mean, you just you know, if I'm spoiling a a fifty year old movie. I'm sorry, <laughs> but <laughs> um, yeah, it's you know they they would have just everyone dies at the end. That's that was the, the way back then, and this one ends in a very uh, almost ambiguous way because he he's he now has that dog that he took from Mary the 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 nurse prostitute. I think it was Mary, right? right? And and he's just kind of sitting back, like what, what's he what's his next step after this? Yeah, I, I wondered that as well. I mean, because I almost kind of wonder because he's so down and out at the beginning that I mean, like you said, I think in the seventies this would have been a character who would have died, who would have met his demise. And so mm -hmm. yeah, next steps, I mean, it would have been nice, I mean, maybe a closing shot of maybe him uh, you know, sending in an application to work for another police department or, or or something like that. But it just but I guess maybe artistically that is a uh, a nice ending for them to leave it open because in a weird way, I don't think he has, he certainly doesn't have much to live for anymore at this, at that point. I guess he still has his mom though. Right. And his, his relationship with his mom looked pretty, um, pretty tortured as well. Yeah. But he's also, he's looking, my understanding was they were looking for a place for her to live because she was, you know, she's up there. Right. So I, I don't think even that's going to last. So. <laughs> so. Yeah, I don't know. It's odd. Well, you know, I mean, I, I've said it before, and I'll say it again, and I'll be saying it again next month. But uh, you know, this is uh, this came from that period where I, I think you know, I, I don't want to say writers and producers, but you know, Lundgren was in kind of a weird spot around this time. You know, oddly enough, I, I would say a lot of the films that he was doing around this time are not my favorite. I don't think are his best work, but I think it was. Um, he was trying with uh, with what he had and what was coming his way. And, you know, my guest on the last episode brought this up as well. But, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, this was a rough period for all of the action guys. I mean, Stallone and, oh, and, and Schwarzenegger, they were not really putting in their best work either. It's just unfortunate that uh, this is kind of the, the dark era, if you will, of, of Lundgren's uh, career. Um, 
Having said that, for this being a Phoenician entertainment production, it certainly looks the best, mainly because uh, we don't have any stock footage in here whatsoever, at least that I know of. So that that raises it up. That's true. So. Well, they they clearly took time with sets and lighting. Um, they they have even even in the beginning of the movie. I, I noticed this last time when the when they're walking in and there's uh, the workers walking around the crowd. Um, they're just waving their flashlights. They're they're creating ambient light. Um, that's that's something that you that you would do if you if you cared. Right. You know, you could just film that same shot and and they have the the, the low amp lights to make the the light. And you they don't need those. They don't need those extras. And somebody took a little bit of time on this movie, so it is kind of weird that. Um, well, it's not weird, but it is. It, I guess it's it's sad in a way that he didn't get noticed for it. But also, if the movie was better, he maybe would have. Also, if it would have came out ten years earlier. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think it's because it's certainly trying to be in a in a in a very dark and gritty way. It's trying to kind of trying to be a taxi driver, if you will, kind of something in that uh, same kind style. Of. Yeah, those movies though. They just, they didn't make him anymore this yeah. time. So he's trying to do something that is, you know, it's just past its prime. It's well past its prime. And it's the same because I think Lundgren at this time is, is kind of in his prime. So it's kind of too bad. He's still fit though. But I mean, he, he's one film, of those guys. I mean, he's he, extremely yeah, physically he's fit in the film. Which is weird considering he's like this burnt out alcoholic and he, you know, has this, has this, yeah, I'm like, this guy still hits the gym, yeah, exactly. apparently. <laughs> so, well, the the moment has come, Brenton. Um, a recommend. So, in your opinion, does Jill the Ripper get a recommend, not just as a Dolph Lundgren film, but as a film in general? I, I'm going, despite my, uh, my, my praising of its uh, photography and some of its writing, I am going to have to say no. <laughs> Which is, it's too bad. And I, you know, if, if Tony Hickox, uh, hears this, I, you know, I feel like you did try. Um, it's clear you did. I don't know what's going on. I feel maybe there's something behind the scenes. Maybe it's budgetary. Maybe it has to do with working with a big star who, who's trying to call shots. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's going to have to be a no for me. Well, you know, <laughs> me personally, I think as a Dolph Lundgren film, I will say, it is certainly the wildest, most drastically different role we've ever seen him take on. Even to this day, compared mm -hmm. with anything he's put out in the past 10 years, uh, I'd still say that Jill the Ripper is certainly the most bizarre. So I will say, if you enjoyed films like 8mm, which I have yet to meet anyone who really said, oh, I really liked 8mm, <laughs> you know, um, and the idea of seeing Lundgren uh, in a film along those lines piques your interest, um, also assuming that you can find it because this one is not available anywhere streaming. If you want to see it, you have to, uh, um, buy the DVD unless you know of any other way. I'd say sure. I don't. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I'd say sure. Check it out. Having said that, but you know, while this is one of Dolph's most daring roles, I, I have to say, in my opinion, I, I think it's also one of his worst films. And I'm not just saying that because it's Dolph in a role that's a departure from what we're used to. The bottom line with me, man, uh, is this is just not a very good movie. Um, there's some interesting exterior shots, 
as well as some really cool artistic shots that they tried as well. But I'll say, you know, the plot is pretty boring. The twists are largely evident and not a surprise at all. And there is not one single character that you like or can sympathize with in any way. In the end, it's just a bunch of ugly, despicable characters in a very ugly film. This is one genre that I can just not get on board with. And so as a result, I'm, <laughs> I'm, it's, it's not going to get a recommend from me either. So I tell you, it is, it's rough hearing it from you too. <laughs> when, when the doll fans are going, nah, that's, that's when it's bad. But I, but I, I do respect and I do commend his performance because I, I think his, yeah, well, his, totally. his performance is good. And, um, you know, to be honest, you know, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm a Lundgren fan, so I'll, I'll watch him in anything, but, um, I don't think I would have liked to see Tom Berenger in this role. I don't think he would have wanted to get tied up upside down and, you know, and, and, and do those no. scenes. And yeah, to, to be honest, I've never really been, I've never really felt, I don't know about you. Um, he's a fine actor and all. I've never really felt Tom Berenger was leading man material. He's a good foil. He's a good, you know, um, supporting character, but I've never been a huge fan of him leading a picture. I don't know what it is, but I will always think of him in the platoon role. Okay. So, like, to me, to me, he's the bad guy. Yeah. I'm like, yeah, that's what he is. And, and anytime I see him in anything, what was it? A sniper. I was like, yeah, he's, I still believe he's a yes. bad guy. <laughs> well, he's done like 10 sniper movies now, um, but, hasn't he? Something like that. Oh yeah, yeah. I've, I, I saw. I've never seen any of the sequels, and I, I'm actually kind of dying to, but we'll see. I'll get there one day. Well, Brenton, before I let you go, um, the website all out of bubblegum. How is that coming? Uh, are you working on anything? Any new video essays or any, uh, any kill counts or anything that is, uh, that is worth checking out? On the website? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. I think. Well, right now, uh, I guess I could probably. Just say I am currently working on one for Cobra, a video on Cobra, the Stallone film, and which is cool because just a little bit ago they had, you know, they interviewed him and he talked about Cobra and doing a Cobra TV show and stuff. <laughs> so I'm, I might, I might see what I can find out about that before I, I write anything on on that. But currently writing about it, so that's cool. Um, not currently working on a kill count, but you know. It, those things are they're they're quick to make if I want to. God, Cobra is such you know, Cobra is such a wild one to me. Um, I'm looking forward to your video essay because you know there, there's two things about Cobra that always stand out to me. For one, it is such a nasty nihilistic movie. I mean, it is just so. Oh yeah. I mean, it's it's much more a slasher movie than it is an, an action film. Um, and so that's one thing that always sticks out mm -hmm. to me is just how just like I said, just how nasty it has just such a, a very ugly edge to it as well. Um, similar to the one that we just talked about. The other thing that is so interesting about it and Sly even touched upon this in uh, in a recent interview is it, it is very clear that they were priming that movie to be the next franchise. They were really trying, you know, yeah. he had Rocky, he had Rambo. It is very clear that uh, Canon Films and uh, Sly, they were trying to kickstart a new character for him to do another five, six films based on. And um, obviously that didn't, uh, that didn't go and that didn't click. But um, yeah, those are the two things that I'll always uh, remember about that. Well, it's weird to, to think about too, because it, it, uh, it did well, you know, it, it, 
it came out and I mean, critics absolutely hated it, but it did well. Yeah. So it's like they could have just kept doing it. Oh, you know. Oh, well, though. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not the uh, – It's I don't know if it's strong enough because basically – and I, I'll end up saying this. It's, it's largely just his take on Dirty Harry. So, you know, it's not – it's not the um, – it's not, it's not the most original thing. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, and it's, it's, he's a very, it's a very static character. I mean, even Rocky and Rambo, yes. we still see a little bit of growth and a little bit of arcs in those films. And now granted, to be fair, those films have also had, um, had multiple films to really flesh out those arcs, but we yes. don't see in, in Cobra, we don't see him growing at all throughout the film. I guess you could say we see a little bit of humor when he is, uh, cracking jokes about Brigitte Nielsen uh, dipping fries in ketchup. Uh, <laughs> he cracks a couple of really yeah, jokes. Well, the, the, the growth is that he learns he doesn't need to have his sunglasses <laughs> on at all times. I know. Because that's how he opens the movie. He's wearing sunglasses. He goes inside. He's eating food in his own house, watching TV, wearing sunglasses, and then finally takes them off at the end. So... That's the growth. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I don't know. Uh, and I, I just, I think it's, it's, I really would, would have loved to be in the writer's room when they were conceptualizing that because I would, I just can't, I can only imagine the slide was saying, okay, look, got a great character. He's a cop, wears leather gloves, super tight jeans, and he has a, <laughs> a map stick that he carries around in his mouth. I mean, that right there is, <laughs> it's great. They're like, you're not describing a character, Sly. You're describing a costume. <laughs> and he goes, eh, same thing. Same thing. <laughs> and it's going to be an 85-minute movie. So, um, yeah. <laughs> anyway. That, that, and that could be uh, – and I, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't want to be stealing the thunder on your uh, Cobra video essay. Oh, it's totally But fine. the other thing that's interesting <laughs> is I, I – it would not surprise me in any kind of way. You always hear about how canon, oh, um, they, would, uh, they would pretty much write a film based on a poster or based on a tagline, pretty much that would come first and then yeah. the film would come later. And I would not be surprised if Cannon and Stallone had the tagline, crime is a disease, meet the cure. If they had that built first and Sly flushed out the character around that tagline. I know that's my theory. I don't know, though. <laughs> uh, I don't think you're far so, off. Anyway. Is this... <laughs> Well, next month is you've agreed to it, um, maybe against your will, but uh, yeah. <laughs> you've agreed to uh, join me once again for the third film in the uh, Dolph and Phoenician Entertainment trifecta, Agent Red. And I will say right now, um, I don't think it can get worse than Agent Red, but I am looking forward to it. I think Agent Red is going to be a, a really fun discussion. Um, I'm, I'm planning on cracking a beer for that one, actually, so... Yes. Well, it's probably going to be necessary. That, that one's a, that one's a good one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so yeah, have one ready, but, uh, Brenton again, thank you so, so much. I do appreciate it. Uh, to everyone out there who is listening, please feel free to rate and review the show on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast app of choice. We always appreciate the reviews and we'll see you all next time on. I must break this podcast.